Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show to those of you in the United States and around the world. You know, it it really does mean so much to me that... We have listeners in 17 countries. I so appreciate that. You are really dedicated and keep on fighting that fight. I have to say a special, special greeting to Gang Young at the embassy in South Korea and Richard Roberts at the embassy in Okinawa. Two friends of mine, two great people. And, you know, my heart is always going out to everyone around the world that is fighting this horrible pandemic, uh, the coronavirus. And, you know, this is one time we are definitely all the same, all the same. And here in the United States, my real condolences to those of you who have lost a family member. But you know what? We're going to all keep on keeping on And this really will pass. Hey, special shout out to Yoshiko Dart. Yoshiko, you keep fighting the fight for disability rights. Also, I just have to thank our sponsors, uh, Employment Options, Wells Fargo, Peoples, and Highmark, who has been our lead sponsor for four years. And that is just the great company they are and thank you hi mark and allegheny health network which is part of hi mark where you are all here in pittsburgh fighting the fight uh, of your lives on the front line you know we are all behind you well as you all know the past several shows we have worked to provide information on emergency measures for people with disabilities and the covid 19 crisis and the reason is yes you could go to you know you all know I live with epilepsy and I'm hard of hearing <clears throat> so you could go to the National Epilepsy Foundation or your local where I am the chair of the local epilepsy association of western and central PA and find out information for people living with epilepsy or <clears throat> you could go to um, UCP for people living with cerebral palsy. I mean, you could go to all of your separate groups. However, we need a source for everyone. We need everyone to know what is going on in this country so we can share that. And please share this radio show. I've mentioned this to you before, but if you go to Apple or Spotify, you can hear the show, or if you go to voiceamerica.com and put in uh, Disability Matters with Joyce Bender, you can hear the past shows. I, I just want to mention, subscribe. If you subscribe to the podcast, you will get them all, and you'll be able to know of the upcoming shows. And today is going to be one of those shows that I hope you do share with everyone because today we are going to the state of Georgia and we will be talking to Eric Jacobson, the executive director of the Georgia Council on Development, Disabilities, and Maryland. Oh, let me get this wrong. 
Marlene, 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 that's it, Marlene Tillman, the co-founder and executive director of the Gwinnett Parent Coalition to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline grant recipient. I've got to tell you something. I can't help it. You know, if you knew me, you would know I'm Miss Motown. You know, I grew up with Motown. I'm all about Motown. And when I said to you, today, we are going to the state of Georgia, all I could think of is midnight train to Georgia. <laughs> and that is just because, you know, I, I've met Gladys Knight. I love her. She's wonderful. Uh, but hopefully, in the not too long future, we will all be traveling to different states, including the great state of Georgia. So, um, Eric, welcome to the show. How are you? Great, Joyce, and thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Well, we're it's a little, great to have- a little, as we, I think as we said earlier, we're just uh, a little tired of being in our homes, but no, that's the right thing to do. Yes, and everyone, I've said this on other shows, stay home. Stay inside, wash your hands. You know why? We want this done. We all want this done. We want it over. But, you know, you're doing a good job because you see the flattening of that curve. But we've got it. I know it's hard. It's hard for all of us. But we've got to keep on keeping on. And uh, I feel your pain there, Eric and (laughs) Marlon, because... It is really, it's really a difficult time. It's hard for everyone. It is. And by the way, how are you handling that? How, how, are we, how am I handling staying aside? Yeah. Oh, my family wishes I would get out of my house. But, uh, um, but I, I think everybody is, is working as hard as they can to be as comfortable with the situation that we are in. And uh, um, I will tell you that um, we don't always agree with, uh, you know, what politicians may or may not be saying, but I think that the fact that we are we have a governor who has said we need to stay home, that's an important piece, and that's also trying to flatten our curve here in Georgia as well. Well, yes, here in Pennsylvania, uh, with Governor Wolf, we are in the exact same situation. Uh, and we are all following his lead also. How about you, Marlene? How about you? How are you managing this? I'm, I'm managing it okay. <laughs> I generally work out of my home anyway. Um, so that part didn't take any use getting used to. It's just that I don't get to leave for meetings anymore. Um, and just doing the mundane errands. But I, I have found solace in my yard, which is, you know, my Zen moment. So I tend to spend time when the pollen allows me. <laughs> I tend to spend time yeah. in my yard digging in the dirt. You know what? I want to tell you something. We're all going to be different. Because all those things people took for granted, like planting flowers, you know, being out in your yard, like going to Starbucks or going to a restaurant or just going to your friend's house or all of these things, going to work, just as you said, going to meetings, going to church. I mean, things we took for granted. But I wrote this article and I, I said, and I also think and hope we will learn to look at each other differently. Um, for example, I, I, think, that, I, think, times, I think that's already happened. 
That's great because how many times have we all gone to a grocery store? Did we ever think that cashier would become one of the people on the front line fighting for us and for their own lives? Would we ever think that? People that people have ignored, looked down upon. Absolutely. And that we haven't been willing to pay $15 an hour, but I guess I shouldn't be on my um, soapbox. No, but you're you're right. I said to someone the other day, my celebrities are no longer uh, musical artists or uh, TV or movie stars or sports figures. They are those cashiers, the first-line responders, the health care workers, the doctors. Those are my celebrities. Those are my heroes now. And also, I have to add, you know, this horrible disparity you now see in the African-American community, where people are dying at a much larger and greater percentage, you know, time to sit back and think. Think about that. Think about that. I I think it's just a continuation of what's been going on for the history of this country and um, the interactions with and the experiences of black people in America. Um, You know, racism is alive and well, and I don't care how many... Um, different kind of precedents we have. Um, that's something that hasn't changed. And so it's just showing the playing out of what has always happened in systemic and institutional racism. And so, uh, you know, as a, as a black woman, I can definitely speak to how we're treated when we go to the doctors. Um, and I don't get it often, but I get it too many times where um, my illness is looked at differently. I'm not in the pain that I say I am. I don't need the same kind of treatment that someone else does. Um, And as an asthmatic, I've had people actually question, do I really have it? Um, I think after all these years, I know I have it. Um, So all of those things, along with the um, environmental conditions, the um, the, what happens, what what gets placed in black neighborhoods, we're generally in the lower wage jobs. So we're on those front lines now, and now we're starting to get a window into how that impacts our community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I think to to add to what Marlon said, and Mm -hmm. I'm. I'm not um, a person of color, um, but uh, I think that what's happening right now, especially for folks with disabilities, is so many people of color are, are hired and employed as direct care staff. Um, they're hired as nurses mm. or nurses' aides in, doctor, in, in hospitals and doctor's offices. And so I think that's why there may be an, uh, part of the reason for... Um, the increase in the African-American community is because of the jobs. And by the way, all those jobs pay under $15 an hour, like Marlon mentioned before. Um, and those are the kinds of jobs that need to have their rates increase so they're being paid at least a living wage so that people don't have to work two or three jobs. And that's what's happening. And so in places like Georgia, we're already starting to see direct care staff that can't get into people's homes because either they're infected or the person living there is infected, or they're working in congregate facilities. We know that here in Georgia at one of our state hospitals that actually was supposed to have been closed before, we've already had a couple of deaths 
of staff that have taken place because of COVID. And, uh, and there have been outbreaks of COVID in um, congregate places like institutions, group homes, shelter day programs, um, and places like that because of, of the nature of that congregation and what we know is a higher rate of people of color involved in those, con- or, or either participants in those congregate facilities or actually the staff there. And so uh, um, I think that uh, this draws a, a perfect line, I think, Joyce, between this idea of what's happening to African Americans in our country right now, especially around the COVID piece, and what's happening to people with disabilities in, in terms of COVID as well. Oh, the health care uh, rationing is just thinking about that. You know, I'm the vice chair of the American Association of People with Disabilities, and Ted Kennedy Jr. is the chair. We've known each other Mm -hmm. for a very long time. If all of you get a chance, go to aapd.com and listen to the panel discussion uh, of two weeks ago with these premier intelligent uh, panelists all talking about this health care rationing and the lawsuits and what happened in Alabama, you know, go listen to that show. Go listen to that show. But let's talk about the two of you. Eric, how about you? Yes. Tell, tell our listeners around the world who you are and what you do. So my name is Eric Jacobson. I'm the executive director of the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities. And the council is one of 55. So there's one in every state and territory in the U.S., And uh, our job, essentially, is to promote systems change uh, within the state, um, usually through advocacy and capacity-building activities, so that individuals with developmental disabilities and their families are more independent. But I think what I would suggest, especially during this time, is that none of us are independent. We all want to be interdependent. Um, Second is that uh, people are more productive and economically self-sufficient. Um, it's one of the issues that I think folks are struggling with right now is how come I can't go to work like I've always been going to work? Um, how come I can't earn a paycheck like I've always earned a paycheck? Um, but those are the, so interdependence, productivity, inclusion and integration in communities and self-determined in people's lives. So in a very brief second, that's what DD councils across the country are supposed to be working on. So we work on things like how do we increase educational opportunities for individuals with developmental disabilities. And in the state of Georgia, we've been working a lot on things like school-to-prison pipeline, things like how do we make sure that individuals with developmental disabilities have opportunities to go to university, as well as um, getting an elementary school education. We want people to go to university like everybody else does. Um, Looking at employment options, Um, looking at how we strengthen the publicly funded system of services and supports. And I think that one of the things I hope comes out of this uh, whole COVID uh, uh, epidemic is that there's a recognition of the frailty of both our healthcare system and our home and community-based services system and what we need to do in order to strengthen those because we've been really lucky in terms of the numbers. It could have been a lot worse or it could be a lot worse and, the system has really shown um, how frail and how and how difficult 
uh, it has been to take care, to make sure that people get the services, supports, and health care they need. Um, so those are, a, those are a number of the things that we do and we work on on a regular basis. Um, and, and again, every state is different because every state has different issues and needs that they're working on. That's one of the beauties of the councils is that we get to work on what's important in our state. Yeah, yeah, and so important, I might add. Um, how about you, Marlon? What do you, what is your role? I am um, the executive director and co-founder of the Gwinnett Parent Coalition to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline. And um, that's our formal name. It's a long name, so we go by Gwinnett Stop for short. And we organize parents, youth, and community members around just what the name says. And we do our work through policy advocacy and advocating for and against policies that impact the school-to-prison pipeline, as well as... um, in uh, public education. And in public education, we run um, workshops to help the community become better aware and understand what is the school-to-prison pipeline, right? Being able to understand the student code of conduct. We run a parent leadership institute, which is a longer-term program that trains advocates, um, trains regular parents and community members to be advocates in education. Uh, We also run a Youth Leadership Institute. Here in Georgia, we have the um, distinction of (laughs) having the the community norms of children are seen and not heard. Um, So this gives youth a chance to have a voice, and we help them gain their voice and how to speak out and become leaders and vocal leaders in their school environments. Um, We also um, do our standalone workshops. We do training around um, federal education policies. We're running a very big campaign right now on training around the Every Student Succeeds Act, which is the marketing name for the um, Elementary Secondary Education Act, which everyone knew as No Child Left Behind, um, which left a whole lot of children behind, and in particular students of color and students with disabilities who had claimed to help. Um, And so we do our work on the the local level within Gwinnett County, Georgia, um, which our school system is the largest school system in the state. One in ten students who are educated in Georgia are educated here in Gwinnett. We also do it at the state level. There are state policies that impact that, and we do a lot of work at the state level in helping to change policy there. We also work on the national level. We have lots of national partners who we um, do advocacy work either in the legislative forum or with the various agencies um, at that level. And so we try to hit each point where policies are impacting children and how do we get the policies that impact um, them in a more positive sense. Um, as well as we're also, um, within all of that, <laughs> looking at how do we get police out of schools. Um, that's not a place for police, and we all want to feel safe, but in communities of color, safety is not found in police, and so that's not a good usage <laughs> of their time. So we're looking at um, a holistic approach to creating positive school climates, making sure children reach their full educational attainment, 
Um, and they go on to lead happy, productive lives. I'm the parent of two sons. I don't want them in my basement. <laughs> you know, they need to go on. I want them happy, whatever that is. That is their calling and gift. I want them to be able to access that. And so those are the things that we do, and we do it in conjunction with parents and youth leading the way and leading and having that voice and directing the way the, the organization moves. Now, that is awesome. And you are a grant uh, recipient from uh, the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities. So, Eric, kudos to you. And I must, I must mention, Eric, that when I read your background, wow, you have a very prestigious background. You've been involved in so many things, including the Olmstead Act. So, um, as I said, you have a very prestigious background uh, at a few things at your I know you were saying they're across the United States but at your specific GCDD what are your what what are your main uh, programs or you know what are what are the main things you do for the community and also what is considered a developmental disability so let me start with the second question first. It's the one we get asked. Um, and develop, actually, developmental disability is defined for us in the Developmental Disabilities Bill of Rights Assistance Act, which goes back to the early 1970s. Um, and it's evolved over that. When it, first was imp- when it first was implemented in the 70s, by the way, I wasn't around back then. I was, I was just a kid. But, uh, um, but back, even back then... They, they defined it by diagnosis. So typically what they would have looked at at that point was, did you have Down syndrome? Didn't you have, pardon the word, mental retardation? Did you have cerebral palsy? Those were the kinds of things that were looked at as developmental disabilities. But as we evolved, that definition went less and less about diagnosis and more and more about um, developmental characteristics. So... Do you need assistance with activities of daily living, like getting up, like being able to uh, go to work? Do you need assistance in bathing? Those are, so what the, the formal definition says is any meta, met, mental or physical impairment that happens before the age of 22 and is expected to last the lifetime of an individual and impacts three areas of daily living, according to our federal legislation, that's a developmental disability. But I... I want to hesitate for a second and say to your listeners that that definition is different in almost every single state, especially as they look at services and supports for people with uh, disabilities. So, for instance, in Georgia, they do not follow that definition that I just gave you. They really kind of still follow much more of a, of a, a diagnostic um, uh, uh, definition so that people with, again, quote-unquote, intellectual disabilities or mental retardation, neurological disabilities, those are the things that, that, that the service system defines as developmental disability, not based on what our federal definition is. So that you really need to check in every state to see what the service system defines as people with developmental disabilities. So within what we're doing here, and by the way, I want to, first of all, just praise Marlon for the work that she's doing. I mean, I remember meeting Marlon for the first time and I came back. I was so impressed. I was like, we got to get her on board because I think that 
the things that she's doing and the, the message that she's giving are so inspiring and so right for what needs to happen, especially in a state like Georgia, that we you know, immediately tried to figure out, and I will also give kudos to the Pennsylvania DD Council, because they had been working on school-to-prison pipeline as well, and so we pulled some of their information in order to, uh, to put out our own request for proposal around this whole issue, and Marlon responded, I was so happy, and we've been working together now for a couple of years, and making progress on this whole issue, which impacts so many kids. And in Georgia, we have something called the GNETs, which I never get correct, but it's like the Georgia Network of, of Therapeutic Schools, which is essentially um, a uh, segregated, school, segregated school systems for kids with disabilities, predominantly African-American kids have been sent there for behavioral issues. And those, many of those schools for a long time were set in old Jim Crow-style school systems to begin with. So to get kids out of that and figure out a way to heal as opposed to punish was really important to us. So bringing Marlon into our world and into our uh, work was really, really important for us. So that's just one of the things that, that we've been doing. The other thing that she referenced in her call was we are extremely involved in the advocacy uh, movement, both on a policy level and an individual advocacy level. So how do we make sure people are their own best advocates? And then how do they use those skills to talk to legislators and others? Um, before this whole COVID-19 thing happened, we were in the middle of our legislative session in Georgia, as I'm sure many other states were as well. And so we had already scheduled five um, days at the Capitol, where we had over 100, 150, 200 people come to the Capitol to talk about issues specifically impacting them. How do we get more money for home and community-based services? How do we make sure that uh, inclusive post-secondary education is still uh, funded and available? And then the one that we did not get to have, and we were scheduled to have it, I think the, Marlon, remind me, I think the week after we actually shut down, was we were actually going to have an advocacy day around school-to-prison pipeline. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get to have that day because the legislature was cut short, everybody was sent home, and uh, that's where we sit now, but we hope to come back to that. So those are just, and I mentioned earlier, some of the other work we're doing around how do we take Georgia and make it an employment first state so that employment, employment is the first option for people with developmental disabilities. I think this is an opportunity with COVID to say, you know what, when we come back, Maybe congregate facilities are not going to bounce back the way others do because of the fact that we saw um, so many of those places become uh, uh, sites for, for the virus to actually take hold. Um, and this might give us an opportunity to really focus on work and employment opportunities as a number one option. So those are just a few things that we do. Well, you do a lot. And, and I just want to tell you, I, I hope, that does happen, what you said. You know, I hope people sit back and look at this and say, what did we do? You know, what did we mm-hmm. do? Uh, and that that will mm-hmm. change. But, but right now, hey, it's time for our news break. As you know, on the half hour, we have Advocacy Matters. So, Perry, Jude, are you with us? Joyce, I am. Thank you for having us. Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you uh, because you're keeping us up to date on what's happening. So go ahead. 
Hey, thanks, Joyce. So, so much is changing with primary elections, primary election dates, and what states are doing in response to COVID-19. So I just want to cover some of what's happening and point uh, your listeners to, again, to our website at disabilityrightspa.org. We have a link to the National uh, uh, Council of State Legislators where you can find more information about your state if you have not yet voted. So let's cover some of what's going on. First, just a reminder that so many states still have to have their primary elections. They're still happening across the country. Many states have pushed back their primary election dates, and others are considering or have decided to hold their vote entirely by mail. And these issues are all due to COVID-19, so let's talk about what those reasons have to do with COVID-19. One, states are having a difficult time recruiting or maintaining their usual complement of poll workers during this pandemic. So without an adequate number of poll workers for each polling place, counties cannot offer the same number of polling locations. And it may be too late to reduce the number of polling locations without creating very, very long lines or running into the possibility of trouble with numerous civil rights laws. So that's a problem states are having. Plus, if you had a primary scheduled for April, you may still be under a stay-at-home order. Pennsylvania is, and we were supposed to have our primary election earlier this month. So our primary got pushed back to June 2nd. So it is actually impossible to hold the primary election while having to stay at home. So then there's the issue of vote by mail. Now, vote by mail can be a very secure way to create a paper trail. However, doing it now at the last minute, disability advocates, we know we also need an accessible way to vote by mail. And a hand-marked paper ballot mailed to everyone's home is not going to be accessible for every person with a disability. Now, some of the states that have been voting by mail have created a not-so-perfect, but still in a, a semi-accessible way uh, to vote uh, when everyone else is voting by mail. Uh, and technology still has to catch up with us. We understand that. Uh, but there are still options uh, for people with disability in those states that are voting by mail. So what's happening in the states now between now and June 2nd? Ohio is voting on April 28th. And if you want to vote by absentee, you can do so still before April 28th. Kansas is going to hold their presidential primary on May 2nd, but there's no in-person voting. That's all been canceled. So Kansas, you could only vote by mail. That's it for your presidential primary. Now, six states have moved their presidential election back to June 2nd. It's Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Maryland, Indiana, Delaware, and Connecticut. And we joined five states who already scheduled their June 2nd uh, uh, primary. They haven't moved their date. 
Now, for a state like Pennsylvania, we've been like number six with the largest number of COVID-19 cases in the country. So a lot of the counties who are seeing large numbers of COVID-19 cases in Pennsylvania have been urging Governor Wolf to hold a mail-in ballot election, and he's not made up his mind yet. So again, advocacy matters. Be sure to check information in your state and vote. Go to disabilityrightspa.org for the information about today's show, and we have a link to the National Council for State Legislators. So please check us out. Oh, that is so awesome. And you know what? You need to know. You need to know because, folks, remember, Justin Dart, vote as if your life depends on it because it does. Oh, are those words true right now? You've got to vote. You've got to vote. And so go to disabilityrightspa.org. Everything's on there. Check it out. Be on top of this. Um, and, and thank you for providing that uh, news for us. And before Perry Jude goes, we are excited because guess what? Next week, she is the star of the show for the entire hour because continuing on with COVID, we're going to talk about Pennsylvania. So Perry Jude, can't wait to have you on next week. Thanks, Joyce. I'm already outlining the show. <laughs> oh, good. All right. We'll talk to you then. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Boy, that voting is so important right now, isn't it? I mean, we got to get out there and vote. Um, and, and Eric, during this pandemic, yes. what what have you seen as, right now, the biggest problems facing people with developmental disabilities? What have you been hearing? So, seeing, I, I think there hearing are, and seeing. Uh, are several there are several themes that kind of emerge and that we've been hearing. And by the way, what we've been doing, and I know other states have been doing the same kind of thing, is actually when I get finished with this call, I have to go on another call because we sponsor a weekly phone call for advocates, self-advocates, family members to talk about what's happening um, around the COVID-19 uh, uh, epidemic. And so the things that we're hearing are, People are isolated and they feel lonely. And what does that mean for individuals? Um, and especially if they don't understand what's happening around them. Why can't I go to work? Why can't I just have people in my house? Um, those are the kinds of questions I think a lot of folks with developmental disabilities are experiencing. There are those feelings of isolation. So I think that's a really big piece to what we're hearing. I think another piece is um, direct care staff and uh, um, are they available? Are they, do they have the equipment that they need? What I found out just today in Georgia is that finally our Department of Public Health has classified direct care staff um, as priority staff to receive PPEs and other masks and equipment that, uh, that we know we're, that are in short supply anyway for doctors and nurses. But folks with, that are working with people with developmental disabilities and have to go into their homes, they need that same kind of equipment. And so I think that we're starting to see um, that begin to at least roll out here in Georgia. Um, and, uh, um, and I think the, the other piece is that we have had increased deaths among uh, uh, workers and people with disabilities here in Georgia, and that's been um, uh, a problem as well. And then finally, uh, our state just recently got approved for what they call the Appendix K which allows uh, Medicaid, the state Medicaid program, 
to waive some of the home and community-based waiver rules in order to um, be more effective during this time. So, for instance, uh, family members, and we haven't been able to have this before in Georgia, family members are now able to get paid as caregivers um, because they may not be able to have a direct care staff come into their home. So the Appendix K, which my, my guess is most of the states have applied for, waive some of the restrictions that we have um, so that we can be more flexible in providing people the services they need in their homes and uh, not only with direct care staff, but with family members especially as well. So those are the things that we're hearing. Um, and uh, one of the things that we did as a network, uh, a DD network here in Georgia, is we actually sent a letter to the governor outlining many of these issues and concerns that we had and trying to encourage him to make direct care staff essential workers so they get the supplies that they need. So, th- so those are the kinds of things that we're hearing, and those are the kinds of things that we're doing. And in uh, – well, that's wonderful. And in Georgia, um, what, what is the pandemic like in Georgia, in your state? Well, well I, I, it hasn't reached the, the, the levels that, for instance, it's reached, I know, in your part of the world – uh, in New York and some of those other places, but it is growing and uh, um, and growing every day. And uh, the governor um, has, again, come out and ple- he's kind of done this weird thing where on the one hand, he's pleaded for people to stay home, but he refused to close beaches and churches. So, uh, so a lot of us have joked that we'll just end up going to the beach and hang out at church and have a good time. Um, but, uh, uh, but, it, it, it is growing, and especially in cities like Atlanta, we've had two outbreaks uh, in rural communities that were really the first um, for us. One was in southwest Georgia in Albany um, because uh, um, people went to a, a funeral and somebody was infected and a lot of people got infected there, and it really became the hot spot for the state of Georgia um, and it really impacted people with disabilities as well because a couple of people with disabilities went to that uh, um, funeral. And there were, and then the other places that we were seeing is like in nursing homes and other nursing or other elder um, congregate, again, facilities uh, where people are living. And as I said before, we've already had two at our state institution, two staff people die at the state institution with massive, not massive amounts, but a large number of people infected as well. So uh, um, we're not at the same level yet as some of the more northeastern states or even in Washington State, but I think we're starting to see those numbers grow, and they're not expecting that peak to happen for about another couple of weeks. Well, you know what? Um, it does take off. And, you know, I'm sorry to hear about the churches and the uh, beaches. You know, I'm yeah. a very very devout member of Northway Christian Community Church, which is live streamed. And I said to someone the other Mm -hmm. day, I said, you know, when the Lord talked about the good shepherd, it was to protect the flock, not to kill the flock. And I I am telling you, you know, when this happens to you, you go home, you give it to someone else. And that is what That's the right. worst part is. Well, listen, uh, Marlene, I have to tell you that when I first heard about what you do, I was extremely uh, excited and interested. And that's because I have been uh, drumming the drum for a long time about what are we going to do about uh, the school 
uh, to prison pipeline. And, you know, I'll call different people and I've talked to them and they'll say, it's so big, it's so involved, there are so many facets. Uh, You mentioned a couple of them, like from the police uh, to if you have a disability, such as a learning disability or ADHD or autism uh, or epilepsy like me, because some seizures, you may, complex partial seizure, you may strike out as someone, uh, are ending up go to the court, ah, they're going to prison. Uh, and, I mean, it is really is a nightmare. Um, so how and why did you become involved with this? So um, I guess I qualify as an impacted parent. Um, when we, I, I saw signs of it before, but was always able to beat it back when we, uh, my kids started school in Maryland. And um, was always able to beat back um, the things that were popping up. And because they were happening just kind of here and there, I hadn't connected the dots. Although I had connected enough dots to at one point ask the school, um, can I have the rules that apply to my son? I don't even want to discuss why they're different. I just need to know what they are so that I can make sure that we're adhering to them. <laughs> and, and, and that caused an uproar in the school as it should have been but I was just kind of tired and that's how I went about it um (laughs) so that that changed some things um and then we moved to Georgia and I noticed that my oldest one who is um very self-assured and um and and has a good sense of himself was being targeted so um, that opened my eyes and started connecting more dots. I had already, always um, was an advocate in our previous community. When my oldest went off to pre-K, I got involved in, in school and became the helper parent, the volunteer parent who's always there, and, and then just started getting more information and becoming more informed and was an advocate in the community. And so Gwinnett stopped for him because of a couple of parents who lived in Gwinnett after we moved here. This is where we moved to. Um, and so we came to understand the magnitude of the problem in our community. We were working as volunteer av- education advocates in our community in various capacity. One was more on the feel-good PTA side, and I was involved in PTA, but as branded as a subversive. Um, I was trying to register 17-year-olds to vote and things like that. Um, <laughs> so... Um, you know, we kind of got together from mutual friends, and we started just kind of helping parents. And more and more, we were noticing that the parents who are reaching out to us are coming to us with disciplinary issues. Um, I just, I was fighting my own disciplinary issues with my oldest one um, that actually ended up being a lawsuit, um, which is very unfortunate. That's not the path we ever wanted to go, but was forced into it. Um, But in in going those paths and helping others, we came to start noticing that an overwhelming majority of the parents who are coming to us are black and brown. An overwhelming of parents who are coming to us had students with disabilities of all races, although students of color who are also fall into that category of a student with disabilities was at higher numbers, but that was kind of that great equalizer, having the, the, um, the disability. And so we started digging deeper to determine the root of the causes 
And we started looking to data. We did open records requests. We started interviewing parents who sought us out and students because we wanted to collect qualitative and quantitative data. We then convened a community listening session to learn more from other parents um, and, to, and to understand what the community is seeing. We started identifying resources and allies who can either provide information or provide support um, helping us navigate these waters. And then we started attending um, the school board meetings. I always was attending, but more people started attending and started to dig into um, education policies and noticing where those connector points were. And after we did that, we kind of confirmed what we were seeing anyway is that we had a growing school-to-prison pipeline problem. It was impacting primarily students of color, students with disabilities, students from low-income backgrounds, um, males. And if you hit all of those rungs, you're at the highest risk of being in the school-to-prison pipeline. So we knew we had to act. The community said, yes, let's act. And so Gwinnett Stop was formed. And from there, we went on to continue that vein in that the community drives the work. We continue to look at data, qualitative and quantitative. We are always collecting stories. We support parents in their advocacy. We help them make that walk. And we also um, always try to talk achievement to the discipline work because if children aren't in school, they can't learn. If they're not getting what they need, they're not going to learn. And so we need to talk about the academics of how overly um, punitive disciplinary policies and practices play out. Um, and they play out on a child's education. That is lost education when they're suspended. That is lost education when they're expelled. Um, and so that's what got us there. Um, it keeps me out there because I'm a child advocate through and through. <laughs> um, and so even though my children have long since graduated from the K-12 education system and have gone on to college, um, you know, in, in an interesting story on my youngest one, he's a student with disability. He was a student with disabilities, and when we moved here to Georgia, he's also gifted. And I told them he was twice exceptional, and they said, "What's that?" <laughs> and they told me I had to pick a label for him when we moved oh. here. I had to pick either the gifted oh. label or the disability label, because he couldn't have both. And because I was already quite informed <laughs> when I moved here, I told them, uh, show me where in IDEA it says I do that. <laughs> what? What's that? Oh, that's the federal law that you're going to follow when it comes to dealing with my son. So he had both labels. Um, and they knew they also had a problem. <laughs> so I wasn't there to take anything, and I tried to um, encourage parents and inspire them and give them the tools and the knowledge that they need to be able to stand there with the same fortitude and say, no, I, I don't have to do that, and we're not accepting just whatever you give out. We want this. And I think the right. more parents are informed and, and active and involved and aware, the more they're able to advocate for others. We've had parents who we have trained who now we only hear from when um, 
they can't get, they, they thought they may have missed a step in helping someone else. So they're calling now to say, hey, so I did this, this, and this, and so what do you think is next? And I said, so is this for your child? No, no, this is for, you know, one of my neighbors, or this is for another child in the school. And so for us, that's the most rewarding thing that we can see. It's not just you advocating for your child, but understanding, okay, well, you got yours fixed or you, you're on that well path, go help somebody else. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. that's got to keep happening. Yes. Amen to that. Uh, Marlon, what is your website? Our website is www.gwinnett, and that's two N's, two T's, um, stop with two P's, love, love the doubles in um, Gwinnett. <laughs> so www.gwinnettstop.org. And spell stop again for everyone? Sure, S-T-O-P-P. Okay, and you know, if you are interested in uh, fighting this fight for the school-to-prison pipeline, uh, you know, this is something you can check into, make a donation, uh, and, and go there today so that you can help Marlon as she's trying to move forward uh, and fight this fight. You know, it's a big fight. So she can use all the help she can get. You know, that, oh, that's absolutely. Another- and if I could also put something out there, we mm-hmm. are looking to hear from more parents of students with disabilities and the experiences they're having now that school has been closed in Georgia. Um, and actually, we're also talking to folks on the national level. So if you, if you have a student with disabilities or you are a student with disabilities, if you could go on our website, let us know. We have a story collection. Let us know what you're experiencing um, in receiving support services so that we can funnel that out to the various chains that need to hear that. So that as we go forth with legislation, um, that there's some oversight that looks out for students with disabilities in particular. That is awesome. That is really great. Um, What do you think is happening right now, Eric, in these prisons across the United States with this COVID crisis? Well, at least what we're hearing is that some of those prisons are now having huge outbreaks of, of the COVID virus and that both guards and administrators, as well as those that are incarcerated, um, are finding themselves with the virus and finding themselves in quarantine. And we're starting to see deaths arise as well. So I think that um, it's just another reason why we need to keep as many people out of whatever, however you define, or in terms of specifics, um, congregate facilities. And by the way, prisons are congregate facilities. Um, we need to keep away from those kinds of uh, uh, environments um, in order to make sure that things like COVID virus don't spread. Yeah, I, I agree with you. In your state, do you then have uh, state institutions? Do you still have those? We have one state institution still open for people with developmental disabilities. We're down to about a little uh, under 200 people that still reside there. Um, It took a Department of Justice uh, um, uh, conversation 
to get us to start closing our institutions, and that came after the Olmstead decision, which, for, by the way, if, you're, if your listeners don't know, um, Olmstead started here in the state of Georgia uh, with two women who sued to get out of uh, one of the institutions here. Um, and even after the Olmstead's decision was made, we chose as a state not to proceed with closing institutions until the Department of Justice came back around and said, if you don't, we're going to start pulling dollars and we're going to start um, uh, lawsuits against the state of Georgia. At that time, we went into settlement conversations, and it's really been about 10 years now of beginning to um, cold down those number of people that were living in institutions until we got down to the final one at Gracewood State Hospital in Augusta. Um, and uh, according to our Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities, the folks that remain are the hardest to, quote unquote, the hardest to place in the community. I, what I think is that everybody can live in the community of given the proper supports. And I think we've just gotten lazy in terms of moving people out. Yeah, and that, I agree. And that is so amazing uh, how you were involved with Olmstead. And uh, if you don't know about it, folks, you got to read about that because that changed. That changed yep. for the better the whole world for people yep. with disabilities. Well, Marilyn, before we go, and thank you both for being the guest on the show today. Uh, Marlene, what message do you want to leave with our listeners? Get involved. Um, fight, 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 and fight again. Um, do not accept whatever is given. Know that there's another side. There's your side, and it needs to be brought forward. We have to lift our students. We have to support them in every way possible. And how about you, Eric? Well, I think I think for right now, I think everybody stay healthy, stay safe. Make sure you're washing your hands and staying indoors and following all those orders. Um, and uh, echoing what Marlon said, get involved What your your news person said in terms of voting, uh, we're struggling with that issue here in Georgia in terms of what does an accessible ballot look like or not look like, but get out there and vote because it's so important. And then finally, if you need additional resources or are looking for information, go to our website at www.gcdd.org. We have been updating it almost daily in terms of what's going on with COVID and, uh, and we look forward to seeing everybody again once this thing is over. All right. Well, you know what? The show has come to an end too quickly. We end every show with a quote. And today it is, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts, said Winston Churchill. Be with us next week to hear Perry Jude Radisick. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are the leader in live Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. We'll be right back.